Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Working Behind the Scenes. On today's show, we're going to look ahead to a wage increase at a major retailer and a luxury retailer potentially splitting into three companies, at least that's the rumor from one media outlet this week. And in news, Lowe's provides an update on 2022 expectations, not just for them, but for the entirety of the home improvement retail industry. Our interview guest is Kathleen McNamara. She co-leads the retail practice at executive search firm Russell Reynolds Associates. She'll join us to talk about what makes a good retail executive, and more importantly, what makes a good fit between a retailer and an executive, how the two parties go about finding an appropriate fit, and some of the costs at play if retailers don't find the right executive for the right position. She'll also talk briefly about some of the new C-suite positions we've seen pop up in retail over the past few years. A quick reminder, the obligatory one, that if you enjoy the show, you can certainly give us a rating, whether that be on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast listening platform. Again, if you enjoy the show, those ratings help others to check us out. We're very fortunate to be coming up on our seventh year in 2022 of the Retail Focus podcast. In fact, I had to count on my fingers before the show just to confirm that was the case. So very excited and obviously couldn't have done it all without the support of the listeners and those ratings. You can also check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. I'm told Layton uploaded pictures of my experience through a Western Kansas dust storm this past week, but more importantly, a retailer that we took pictures of during the course of the dust storm as well. All right, let's get right to the news. As as I mentioned, they do provide an update on 2022 expectations. Most of their presentation on December 15th focused on ways in which Lowe's would drive market share gains and margin expansion this coming year. But the headline grabber in most retail media outlets had to do with sales expectations. Now, Lowe's first began the presentation by confirming their full-year 2021 outlook. Based on sales to this point in the current quarter, they feel as though numbers will come in as expected. Holiday season sales about as they expected during the last quarterly call. They expect 33% comp increases on a two-year stack and operating income as a percentage of sales to arrive at 12.4%, which is Fairly robust for them versus some of those pre-Marvin Ellison days when the retailer was taking a few steps, if not forward, then maybe sideways compared to their major rival Home Depot. And of course, the pandemic and leveraging higher sales numbers over the past two years has certainly helped operating margin even against some of the COVID-related expenditures they were seeing. But the confirmation of 2021 numbers, again, wasn't what grabbed headlines. Their expectation of comp sales to be anywhere between a loss of 3% to flat next year, that did garner attention, and it was what got the headlines. We should note that total sales for Lowe's are expected to potentially edge up slightly into the $94 to $97 billion range, 
By the way, it's $95 billion, the 2021 prediction. So could go slightly lower, could go slightly higher. But the reason for this is not as a result of store count growth, but a 53rd week in the fiscal year. That 53rd week does not factor in to their comp expectations. So they expect sales on a per store basis to fall a little bit. On the flip side, they do expect operating income to increase by 10 to 40 basis points as a percentage of sales. And that's probably why, honestly, they spent a significant amount of time focusing on this aspect of their outlook because that's the positive aspect of their outlook share and then that improvement in operating income. Marvin Ellison, the CEO, actually began the presentation by highlighting various tailwinds that have assisted the industry overall for the past couple of years. And we've certainly heard most of them. Home price appreciation, for example, allowing for equity loans for improvements. There's aging houses out there with very little in terms of new housing developments. Work from home during the pandemic causing that nesting phenomenon. But Ellison also noted accelerated millennial household formation, that's actually a direct quote, and also an increased desire of retirees to maybe age in place going forward as other drivers that have kind of fueled sales over the past two years. And this, in turn, has fueled the remarkable pro-customer comps at Lowe's, which are up 24% year to date, so even over a fairly solid late year in 2020. They maintain aggressive sales goals here with their pro customers. They want to grow their pro business at about 2x the market rate for the next three years. Certainly an ambitious goal, but you appreciate their willingness to set high goals. They do expect, though, the relevant market in home improvement to see those tailwinds that have been fueling it for the last couple of years maybe die off a bit in 2022. You're not talking about them completely going away. You're not talking about meaningful headwinds other than maybe inflation and supply chain, what everyone else is talking about. But rather, in terms of demand, you might see demand soften a bit. At least that's Lowe's take. They reiterated several times that this would be theoretically industry-wide. So they still anticipate grabbing market share overall, even if comps do decline a little bit next year. And what they want as an internal goal is a mix of 75 to 25% DIY to pro customer revenue, again, reflective of that increased pro revenue as a percentage of overall sales. And you might say, well, if they're expecting sales to go down, you're deleveraging a little bit. Where is that operating margin going to come from? Where is that operating income going to come from as a percentage of net sales that's expected to increase next year? Well, The answer there is their momentum in private brands. Increased year-over-year penetration here, not only in 2021, but expected for 2022 as well, as well as increased pricing across all categories. Those are really seen as the drivers for margin. Decreased discounting going along with that, of course. And they hope that will actually increase that operating income in the face of logistics cost increases, and then also wage cost increases, as well as a a few other monetary increases that you're likely to see in 2022 versus 2021. So that was obviously the main attention grabber in terms of most of the media, but what I found most interesting, having sat through the presentation, was that Ellison spent a significant amount of time, as did others on the call, 
discussing their omni-channel initiatives. Now, typically, I hear omni-channel initiatives, and these are platitudes from most retailers. They talk in very vague forms about omni-channel. It's almost a trite buzzword at this point going into 2022. But Ellison gave fascinating insight into some of their goals, specifically as it pertains to streamlining their supply chain for online orders, especially as it pertains to larger products. So currently, let's break this down a little bit. An online order for, say, a major appliance, maybe a range, it touches eight different sources at Lowe's. The vendor, the distribution center, the store, then the stockroom of the store. Then it gets moved from the stockroom of the store to storage containers for a third-party logistics firm, then to their delivery truck, and then eventually to the customer. They want to streamline this by the end of 2023 to just touching five different sources, from the vendor to the distribution center, then to cross-dock terminals for the specific purpose of third-party logistics firms picking those up, onto the delivery truck it goes, and then to the customer. So they're cutting the store out of this system for larger merchandise. And by adding merchandise to cross-dock terminals that are specifically intended for delivery to a customer, like I said, for my theoretical example of a range, they can hold active inventory in those terminals, which facilitates easier delivery for the third-party logistics providers that in turn perform the deliveries. And the other thing is, because they're holding inventory actively there, they hope to be able to fulfill orders with a quicker turnaround in this way. So now if you purchase a range at most Lowe's locations, the range, again, has to first get shipped to the Lowe's store, then get moved to the storage container for the third-party logistics firm. If you're cutting that step out and you've got the inventory as an added bonus already in stock, potentially, at those cross-dock terminals, you're looking at a much quicker turnaround for customers to receive those larger orders. And of course, they hope to drive customer satisfaction through that mechanism and eventually improved sales. But here's the other benefit to this platform. Is if you can open up the stockroom space that would otherwise be just holding inventory to be shuttled from one place to another, essentially like a storage container inside the store, they hope to actually use some of this open up space up to 10,000 square feet in some circumstances in their back room for some of the same and next day fulfillment of smaller products. So you're not talking about the ranges, the freezers and so forth here, but just those everyday pro or DIY orders that customers might be putting in. So it's really a more effective way to use the space within each one of their stores. You see why that was especially a fascinating detail on this particular presentation. And again, these are changes that they hope to be in place by 2023 and really create some efficiencies, first of all. But second of all, find a way in terms of utilizing space and utilizing their associates' time to benefit everyone involved from the associates to the customers, maybe unlock some of the monetary efficiencies that come with that as well. So to summarize everything here, many retailers about this time begin to release their next year outlooks. Not as many or as complete as what Lowe's was this last week. And credit to Marvin Ellison and company for being very upfront and clear with this presentation and giving a ton of specifics regarding their plans for the year ahead. However, it will be intriguing to see if their forecasts for the macro industry as a whole 
pan out and if they can, in fact, grab some overall market share, which they've been claiming they've been doing really since the pandemic started. Remember, they're not just competing against Home Depot here, but the likes of Ace and True Value and Menards as well, all of whom have seen varying degrees of success during the last two years, and in some cases going back even longer. And Ace went so far as to add 170 stores to their system this year, so that race for market share increases won't be an easy one, especially when you see some of that brick-and-mortar growth stagnation on Lowe's side compared to other players in this industry. Speaking of Marvin Ellison and retail leaders, again, our interview guest coming up after this break is Kathleen McNamara from Russell Reynolds Associates. She'll discuss the world of the retail C-suite, some new roles that have been introduced, and also the process behind finding the perfect executive for the ideal retail role. And this includes a conversation about what retailers that might not be in the best position might be able to do in terms of finding someone that can help turn their business around. Often in the news segment on this show, we talk about C-suite transitions and C-suite roles being added at major retailers. Most of the time, though, any C-suite additions come along with a flowery press release and not a lot of details surrounding the hires or their positions. We wanted to take a closer look at not only all the new positions being added to retail C-suites everywhere, but also the process behind landing top talent in an age where the battle for talent is just as fierce on the ground floor of retailers as it is at the top levels. And joining us to discuss these subjects and more is Kathleen McNamara, who co-leads the retail practice at executive search firm Russell Reynolds Associates. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trent. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, first, just so our listeners know the perspective that you bring, I was wondering if you mind discussing kind of what your role entails on the day-to-day. Yeah, absolutely. So I work along with some fabulous colleagues in our consumer practice here at Russell Reynolds. We, generally speaking, cover a a wide swath of talent issues in consulting with our clients. It could be everything from straightforward search for an executive to assessment work, to culture assessment, to board work, and broader advisory in terms of things like talent pipelines. So covering the waterfront in supporting our clients in how to think about talent, but then also how to make sure that they are positioned appropriately to make sure that talent is successful in their role. So now that we've got a bit of an idea of your background, I was wondering in terms of the actual process of identifying and recruiting high-level talent for positions, I was wondering if you could give our listeners just what that whole thing might look like from start to finish for a typical retail company. Oh, sure. You know, we do want to be very thoughtful as we set out on a mandate with our clients. Oftentimes they will come with a need. Sometimes it's straightforward in the context of someone having retired or moved on and they're looking to fill a role that previously exists. In other cases, they're thinking about creating a new role or a new mandate with different scope and are looking for our help and advice in terms of how to structure that. Generally speaking, we want to make sure we understand, you know, what are the requirements of the role? What are the objectives? What are they seeking to do with the person in this role? And then we give some thought to what types of backgrounds and experiences would be relevant. And this is where we think about a search strategy. So we really strive not to be predictable and look for someone who's done that exact same thing someplace else. 
but really think about folks that have experience that is relevant, but maybe a little bit different. So like a different point of view and perspective. Generally speaking, there is always a conversation around budget because what you want and what you can afford can sometimes vary. And again, being creative about how we think about search strategy in terms of which pools of talent might we go after that allow our client to get what they need, but you know, within the compensation ranges that they're working in. And then lastly, I would say there's a lot of focus on diversity and inclusion when we think about bringing in senior leaders in an organization. And the vast majority of our clients, not just in retail, frankly, but in other sectors, are quite focused on this. And that's where our role is to really help our clients think differently about what are the required experiences and then what are some experiences that could be analogous that will get you the same result, but widen the pool of talent and allow you to be more inclusive and be able to drive greater diversity into the role. Now, you mentioned, of course, the idea of role responsibilities. For example, a search for maybe backfilling a retiring CEO position might be different versus filling a position that's been newly created. I'm kind of curious how that differs in terms of interaction with the company. Because you know, again, if you have an existing role, they obviously have an idea of what they want, but maybe with a new role, that definition isn't clearly sussed out for you. Well, that's a good comment. What I would say is even when it's an existing role, one of the things we need to be always mindful of is the needs of the business. Likely if it's consumer and retail in particular have shifted since the last person was placed in that role. So even for an existing role, we will spend the time with our clients to really understand what does success look like? Because in fact, there might be a, a different spin or a different need to emphasize some aspect that maybe did not exist previously. And they're taking advantage of the fact that they now need to make a change and bring in new talent to perhaps close off a gap that they found in their organization. We saw a lot of that through the last 20 months in COVID as an example. In terms of a new role that did not previously exist, this is honestly what we find really interesting to work with our clients on because it really is an advisory conversation where we focus on what are they trying to accomplish and what's the best way to go and accomplish that. And by the way, how does that fit into your existing organization and try to see around corners in terms of what might be some advantages and disadvantages to help them manage through that. Now, as we talk about creation of the new roles, I'm curious, as you look across the retail landscape regarding this expansion of the C-suite, where are retailers seemingly attempting to create these new roles the most and what roles are they? What roles can we expect to see filled more often over the next few years? There is definitely a theme that we're seeing where these new roles are being created, things like chief customer officer, chief consumer officer, chief growth officer. We will see these broader titles in play. And I think the thing to be thoughtful about is the role itself is new, but the functions that are within it are the same functions as before. What we're seeing is the opportunity to create a more agile and streamlined C-suite by bringing together specific functions that are relevant to what that company is going through at that point in time. So as an example, if you think about a business that is really looking at improving their omni-channel performance, being able to really deliver for the customer across different channels. And in the previous organizational structure, they might've had a merchant, they might've had a marketer, and they might've had an e-com leader, and they were all sitting separately, working collectively, but sitting separately. 
if the need is to really drive out silos and be able to harmonize decision making, prioritize, and be able to have a single point of accountability across those touch points, that's where we see these new roles developing where those things have all been collapsed together. And we've seen evidence of that quite recently, you know, not just within retail, but also within CPG with chief growth officers as an example. So it's more of a streamlining in that perspective where depending on the strategy of the company, they might put merchandising and marketing together. They might put marketing and digital together. They might put e-commerce and stores together. They're creating the opportunity of a broader role where there is more alignment and accountability for the end result. So we've talked about the new roles, of course, but I'm also curious, you mentioned kind of right off the top, culture assessment. And if you're around anyone within a retail C-suite, they're talking about how important culture is, how important their organizational culture is. And I'm curious kind of what goes into the culture assessment and, and how you do assess a potential candidate as far as a fit for a given company's culture. You know, I think having an understanding of what success looks like in terms of culture is really important at the outset when we are going to market on a particular role. There are paradigms, if you will, in terms of highly entrepreneurial, low process, fast moving. There are other paradigms like very considered, highly collaborative, maybe highly matrixed. You need to have your stakeholders all aligned with you. And if you think about those different types of paradigms, some are a great match for individuals and some are the terrible match. <laughs> and at the end of the day, the individual is not going to be successful if they personally don't feel like they have an alignment with that particular culture. And honestly, when we talk with executives and you know they articulate that maybe they made a wrong choice in their career, largely it comes down to culture. They did not assess the culture well enough to really understand how things happened. And it wasn't a match for how they'd like to work. So getting that culture match right with the candidate is critical. We are in retained search, which means that we have a very high percentage of our clientele repeat business. And we would want to make sure that the individual is going to be there for the long term and be successful. So that's in terms of the culture match, if you will, really understanding how things get done and making sure that we're testing and assessing candidates to understand what types of environments will they thrive in and what types of environments will ultimately frustrate them, which would lead them to probably depart earlier than you'd want them to. I think that on the flip side, when we think about these new roles that we're seeing in retail now, these chief customer officers, chief growth officers, chief commercial officers, things like that. When we see those roles, I think the thing to be mindful of is there's also need to lead differently. CEOs who might have a suite of 10 or 12 direct reports might be more directive in terms of how they are lining up those executives. But when you actually have these roles, you want to make sure that you are communicating frequently with your teams. You want to make sure that you are coaching more and directing less so that those teams are able to be empowered to do what they need to get done. You want to make sure that you are spending time together where you're solving problems as opposed to updating or statusing. And you want to make sure that you're being focused more on the strategy of what's getting done versus the operations, which tend to be further down the organization. So there's a different type of leadership model that we see in these streamlined C-suites, which is a culture impact. I think there's some great information there just as far as evaluation of potential fits. But you did mention something there in terms of, you know, you don't want a candidate for this position to get the position and then, of course, leave the company early that has various impacts across the board. 
obviously early departure is one potential negative of having the wrong person in the wrong role. But what are some other maybe benchmarks that you're looking for in terms of executive or C-suite executive success, whether it be staying at the company a long time or other things that you can kind of use as key performance indicators? Look, nothing makes me happier when I see a successful candidate get promoted into another role in the organization. That is thrilling. It demonstrates that they were able to deliver on the original mandate that they were brought in for and being rewarded and recognized in terms of additional scope or mandate or opportunity to take on additional responsibilities in the organization. So momentum trajectory within an organization is always a great sign that someone is doing well and they have navigated the politics and they have delivered on the results that the company was looking for and are thriving there. I think to me, that's one of the best signs of someone performing well. I would also say that on the flip side, you know, if someone ends up leaving an organization prematurely because the fit wasn't right, the cost is not simply that individual in terms of their career trajectory and maybe having to take a lateral move or maybe having to rethink what they do next. But there are also implications for the organization as well. It's quite disruptive when you bring in a senior leader. And if they don't stay for very long, you're creating a lot of disruption in that organization. There are teams that can be dislocated by that lack of leadership. If the fit isn't right, maybe the new leader came in and set on a different path, either culturally or from a strategic perspective, and that might set the organization back as well. So the risks of not getting it right are actually high, which is why we take a lot of time and attention to make sure we're assessing candidates pretty closely to make sure that the fit is going to be right. We've talked about a lot of these things from the company perspective, of course, the company finding the appropriate executive for a particular role. And I'm curious what it looks like on the other way around in terms of executives looking from the outside in at companies. What are some things that executives could or should be looking for as they potentially move or have the choice of moving into a new role? Well, listen, the war for talent trend has never been more aggressive (laughs) than it is right now. (laughs) So the reality is for strong talent, it really is a seller's market. What I like to counsel my candidates to do is to test. If they get a phone call from a retained search recruiter like myself who says, you know, I think there's an opportunity here that you would be interested in. Let me tell you a little bit about it. I like to say to those candidates, test me, like ask me why you should take this role. What is it about my background and experience and my career trajectory that should make me want to learn more about this? Why is it relevant to me? And I think anyone who is strategic and thoughtful about search and about talent should be able to articulate why this role potentially could be a fit going forward. We would have no business calling individuals for whom this role would be a lateral or potentially would be a step down for them. So we should be able to articulate that. The second thing I would say is it's important to do your homework. As we said earlier, culture is often this very difficult to explain uh, dynamic that honestly can make or break success. And a lot of people don't spend enough time really understanding the culture of an organization before they make the jump. And so putting the time in to ask some quite meaningful questions, making sure that they have the opportunity to talk to people, both hiring managers, but also peers, and maybe even subordinates, frankly, and really getting a bead on what does good look like? What gets rewarded in this organization? What are some of the frustrations people find in terms of how the culture works and what are the things they love about it? But actually spending the time to really dig into that. The other thing I would mention is 
really appreciating what the mandate is for the role. What is being asked of you? What does success look like? And do you feel that you have the resources that you need to be successful? The other piece that we'll often hear from individuals where it hasn't been a good match for them, aside from culture, would be that they were recruited into an organization to deliver on X or Y strategy. But then when it came to actually getting the work done, it turned out that there were no resources available to get it done. And so really being thoughtful about, you know, what is the organization willing to put behind this? What is the process to get those resources? Is there a commitment in order to deliver against them? Um, and how does the organization tend to deliver against those types of mandates is also important to get a perspective on. The good news about what has happened in executive search over the last 20 months is that we've all gotten much more comfortable with using video technology to meet people. In the past, it used to always be face-to-face -face and usually early on. So that means that you really can actually have a lot of conversations and you can really get to know people well. And I always encourage my candidates to spend as much time as possible with the company both electronically, but before they meet in person, walking stores, visiting DCs, spending time in the headquarters to really understand you know, what they're all about. So you mentioned a few different things there I wanted to follow up on in conjunction with one another. First, of course, you mentioned the war for talent. It's obviously very tight out there right now, as you mentioned, seller's market. The second thing is you mentioned a potential candidate perhaps looking at resources allocated, being unhappy if proper resources aren't allocated. And I say all of that to say this. We know, of course, that there are certain companies out there, certain retailers especially, who maybe aren't doing as well as other retailers are out there. They might not be the primo company for an executive to end up at. So my question is, other than pay, what are some things that these retailers could do to potentially attract some of that higher-end talent to say, hey, you know, we know things aren't looking good now, but maybe here's our plan going forward. That's a great question. And I think that, first of all, I always have to say, there's always one great candidate for every opportunity. There always is. <laughs> the key is to discover, you know, what is that magic collection of experiences, skills, talents, and leadership for that particular role. Look, I do a lot of work in retail. There are retailers that have suffered over the last couple of years. There are some that are on the upswing in terms of looking to redefine themselves, redefine their brand, redefine their strategy, whatever that might be. And I think it's really important to kind of understand, again, what are the types of competencies and experiences that that retailer needs to be successful? Turnaround people who are accustomed to being in turnaround type scenarios or transformation type scenarios they're already attuned to that type of environment. And in fact, they actually get a lot of satisfaction out of being able to move the needle in those types of environments. There are others that are more focused on, let's say, disruptive upstart brands and starting from near zero and being able to grow something where it doesn't previously exist. That's also, that also can be a tough situation to be in. But if you're accustomed to that, and if you're accustomed to having limited resources and being scrappy and how you get things done, those types of opportunities will also be attractive to you. So the key is to really be thoughtful about what's the search strategy for this particular role, given the unique set of circumstances around that company. If you have an organization who is, let's just say the, the shine is off the brand, maybe it is a little more troubled in terms of what the future looks like, then the key is to look for individuals who would actually relish the opportunity to go in and be able to drive change. Oftentimes in those circumstances, there is more work to do than there are people. 
And there's an ability to actually expand your scope and be able to get a lot more opportunities to deliver than you might normally in, let's say, a large scale, smoothly running, you know, finely honed machine where roles might be more narrowly scoped. So at the end of the day, it's understanding what type of talent is the best for that type of opportunity. And then number two, being able to think about folks at their career trajectory in terms of what would be accretive to them. Maybe you're more open to joining a brand that might have a bit of trouble ahead and needs some help, but it does allow you to expand your scope and actually be able to develop additional competencies and experiences. Some really interesting insight there, especially from the perspective of maybe a retailer looking to turn things around with those so-called turnaround executives. I wanted to close out on this, and this is something you mentioned right off the top, but diversity in the C-suite is obviously a major topic in the retail community today. What can retailers do to ensure that they've got a diverse set of voices in terms of the entire spectrum at their top levels? Look, Trent, that is a great question. And to be perfectly frank, it's one that we engage with our clients on on almost every single mandate. And I think the key here is to recognize that there is no silver bullet here at all. It does take a lot of planning, a lot of commitment, alignment across the entire leadership team in terms of importance and prioritizing diversity and inclusion. Being thoughtful, it's not just about diversity, but it's also about inclusion in the sense of how do you make sure that as you are diversifying backgrounds and experiences within your leadership team and through the organization, they also feel welcome and that their points of view and perspectives are going to be welcomed. So it is a very, very tight market. What I often advise our clients to do is to think about it in a multi-pronged approach. The first is to be more open about what types of backgrounds and experiences are analogous to what they're looking for so that they can actually widen the pool. And be thoughtful about, you know, what does good look like here? It might not be the usual suspects. As an example, if you think about individuals coming out of other types of retailers, coming out of, let's say, food retail or coming out of hospitality, you know, being open to different types of retail experiences that are relevant to your brand is going to help you drive a greater degree of diversity. The second would be to be thoughtful about how you are seeding diverse talent into your organization at all levels. So you definitely want to make sure that you're thoughtful about that diversity through all levels of your organization, but focusing just on the top is a mistake. You want to also make sure that you are creating opportunities through the organization for that diverse talent, and you're going to be growing talent on your own, creating a place where people can be mentored and developed into that senior leadership ranks as well. I think there's also an element around being mindful that diverse talent is in short supply in some of the roles that we're talking about here, not all, but in some. And you think differently about where this person might come from. You think differently about the background experiences you want for the role. You make sure that you are purposeful and specific around your objectives in terms of driving diversity and inclusion, measurable in that approach. And you have some specific examples of things that you're actively doing. And then you make sure that you give your new recruits or the folks that you're trying to recruit your organization an opportunity to understand all those things about you, including meeting other diverse talent in your organization. So making sure you're putting your best foot forward. There's a high degree of skepticism amongst diverse talent. They're getting a lot of phone calls and they are going to be quite choosy about the types of roles and companies they'll join. And they will want to see what the resolve the measure and the efforts are that these organizations are putting forward to drive DEI. 
Well, we covered so much and it feels like we only scratched the surface, but I also don't want to monopolize your entire day. Once again, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast and shedding a little bit of a light on the retail C-suite and finding the right people for the right roles. Oh, it's my pleasure, Trent. Anytime. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Kotlin for joining us. And as I mentioned at the onset of that interview, that's really a field that we talk about in passing here on the podcast. But it's great to have a little bit of color given to some of the behind the scenes, how the sausage is made, so to speak, in terms of retailers going out, finding with usually the help of an intermediary, someone to fill that position, whether it be a new one or backfill an old one at their company. And we've seen and talked about in the past, the negatives that you get as a retailer when you have executives and it's just a revolving door in their C-suite, the negatives that can be done as companies jump from goal to goal to goal. We've seen that in the past from retailers such as, well, JCPenney would be a great example of this. Duckwall Alco Stores Incorporated for a while before their bankruptcy seemed like they had a new CEO in place every single year. So really finding the right executive is something that can springboard a retailer or can really put a retailer under a significant amount of duress and pressure. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment this week, I did want to talk very briefly about Hobby Lobby as they raised their minimum full-time hourly wage, at least starting January 1st, to a whopping $18.50 per hour. Now, again, this is for full-time employees, for part-time employees. That minimum wage did get a boost this season up to $13, but again, for full-time employees, $18.50. Again, that's notable because you kind of wonder if that's going to have ripple effects. Hobby Lobby seen by many retail workers as, in some cases, an ideal retailer to work for because of the fact that they are closed on Sundays. It assures at least most of their employees, there are some staff that work on Sundays, but assures most of their employees get at least one day, one fixed day home per week. But very interesting to see if this will have any ripple effects throughout, in particular, the craft retail industry, as Joanne and Michaels also look to grow. Credit to them. Certainly, there were a lot of people, ourselves included, that were somewhat negative towards Hobby Lobby and the way they handled the early days of the pandemic. So it is nice and it is also important to give them their kudos as far as taking care of their employees in this context. Now, the larger looking ahead story that we'd like to talk about is Neiman Marcus and a potential, at least according to reporting done in the New York Post this week, that they will split into three different companies. Their e-commerce operations will go into one, Neiman Marcus brick and mortar operations into another, and Bergdorf Goodman into a third. And I think this is interesting in the context of the interview we just had, when we were talking to Kotlin McNamara, she was talking about really the streamlining of a lot of C-suites and these new positions designed to kind of streamline things because of businesses focus so much on omnichannel, focus so much on consistency across channels. Now, Neiman Marcus wouldn't be the first retailer to have done this after 
Sachs kind of did something similar in the recent past, but it is interesting that you would want to silo off the three store brands. Maybe you can get the Bergdorf Goodman part of it, but kind of interesting that you would want to split off potentially the e-commerce brand. Now, again, the reporting in the post suggests that JP Morgan has been working behind the scenes to kind of work this deal out or at least provide input on the deal. Another player in the deal behind the scenes apparently is Alex Partners, who has worked with a number of retailers regarding potential spinoffs, particularly of e-commerce businesses. Now, full disclosure on our end, we have had leaders join the show from Alex Partners in the past. Most recently, Alexa Dryansky, their head of market and consumer insights for their retail practice. She joined the show in February of 2021. So again, full disclosure there. Don't want anyone sounding the conflict of interest alarm. But as far as Neiman Marcus is concerned, again, an intriguing decision if they do decide to go through with this. Now, some of the sources quoted anonymously in the New York Post seemed as though this was a done deal. But of course, Neiman Marcus, Alex Partners, JP Morgan all declined to comment here. Neiman Marcus has, of course, been on tenuous financial footing in the recent past. Bankruptcy, Chapter 11 in May 2020, purchased out of bankruptcy by private equity owners, number of private equity owners. So it's not uncommon to see a retailer in this circumstance maybe sell off parts of their business. The reason I'm looking ahead to it, and really I'm taking a much longer view on it, it might be a good financial windfall, for example, to spin this off in the next two to three years. But what happens in terms of the efficiencies in-house? What happens when you silo those particular areas off? And again, it's not just our interview guest in Kotlin saying this, but we talked to a number of people in retail talking about kind of removing those silos. And now you get these luxury retailers in Saks and now potentially Neiman Marcus kind of creating those, even though technically they're, they're separate companies. Everyone says, well, hey, it's not going to really change day-to-day operations, but it can't help but change day-to-day operations. I've been a part of companies that have spun off other companies in the past, and they've said, no, it won't change anything about operations. And then what do you know, two, three weeks after the spinoff operations drastically change in terms of the way those associates, whether they be in the C-suite or otherwise, are interacting with one another in terms of the access everyone has to the numbers going across the different platforms. So again, more of a four to five year outlook for me to see if some of these businesses are making the right move in terms of bringing in some of that financial stability now, or if they're jeopardizing the future efficiency of their businesses by affecting these splits. Well, that'll do it for us this week on the Retail Focus Podcast. A big thanks to Layton working behind the scenes as I'm traveling in southern Arizona this week. So I've been kind of here, there, and everywhere. Now coming up for next week's show, we'll be joined by a leader from Wipro Limited to discuss the look ahead the year 2022 in terms of technology is concerned as it pertains to retail. So we're going to talk about emerging technology in retail, the role it'll play in 2022, and maybe some things regarding personalization as well and how we can see that being tweaked going forward in retail as retailers continue to try and feel out the conundrum between personalization and compartmentalization 
And obviously, I think we all know personalization isn't quite there from a retail perspective yet. So they'll bring an interesting perspective. Well, once again, thank you all for listening. And we'll be back with you seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.